The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and we are joined here today by Julie Burwald, author most recently of the book Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. Julie received her PhD in ocean science from the University of Southern California. The author of Spineless and a science textbook writer and editor, she has written for several publications, including the New York Times, Nature, National Geographic, and Slate. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm so excited to talk about Life on the Rocks with you. Thank you, Marikita. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, So Life on the Rocks is really beautiful and shocking look at the state of coral reefs today, but it's not all dark predictions and harsh realities. There's a lot of optimism and future planning involved, which to me makes it a really refreshing read and a compelling read. Of all the environmental impacts on the oceans, what made you want to take on the topic of coral reefs now? So coral reefs were sort of my first love. I I sort of tell of my love in the first chapter that basically I grew up really landlocked. Um, My family, we went to the beach, I think a couple times, but never stuck our heads underwater. I mean, snorkeled, (laughs) looked underwater. I'm sure we went underwater. But uh, so then my junior year of college, I went to Israel for a uh, study abroad and I was pretty miserable on the program. I didn't connect very well people around me or the program. I don't know. It was just in a bad place. And I saw a sign on the wall, like marine ecology course during winter break. And I was like, yes, let me go some, do something different. And so we took a bus down to the Red Sea and then got off the bus and they handed me a snorkel and a mask and fins and said, go. And I was like, go where, you know, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> stuck my head underwater and I just couldn't believe what was there. It was like this bustling, beautiful world. And, and it was like on our planet, you know, and this was before there were tons of like our planet blue documentaries. And I, but I just never seen, I couldn't believe that we existed with this incredible beauty and, and uh, vibrancy. And I just, kind of made the decision I want to be a marine biologist in that moment. Um, it was it was a, a shocking thing that I did. And so then I tried to go to grad school. I, I did go to grad school, but I couldn't get in to study coral. I, I, my, you know, my transcript didn't look right for that at all. Mm-hmm. But I always, I mean, I think that love for coral was like imprinted on me in that moment. And so I've always followed the story of coral and been fascinated by the fact that like, what makes them, you know, what is their, their superpower is a symbiosis and just like how much more power you can get by working together 
than by competing with each other. Like, I think that that detail of their lifestyle made me, I don't know. I just, I just believed in it, I think in my core. And so I, I, when the stories of the coral bleaching started accelerating, I was super saddened by it. And I thought, um, well, I can't write a book about coral because I don't want to write their obituary. And then I went to this meeting in Florida called Reef Futures and, and the, the scientists and the coral people who, who work on coral reefs were telling a different story. They were like, no, wait, there's more nuance to the story. There's, there's places where there's hope, there's stuff we're doing. And I realized, oh, I do want to tell this story. I want to, I want to add this voice to the, what's out there about coral and, and do it in a way that like, yes, things are dire. It is critical time right now, but like, let's not write off the coral reefs yet. Yeah, it was, um, it was really uh, lovely because I think a lot of the articles and things that like we traditionally see, or at least recently see are, um, really quite alarming and, and not that you don't include the alarming data in your book, but it doesn't just, you don't just stay there. Like, um, I think one of my favorite things that you talked about was the like bioengineering the environment and like, is it, was it cloud brightening? Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah. I had never heard of that before. And I, as soon as I got like through your introduction of that, I had to close the book and I had to talk to my friends about it. I was like, (laughs) have you, have you folks heard of this? This is really, really cool. Uh, and I love that you talk to your your son about it um, to say, you know, uh, we don't know what the implications of this might be. Like if you were making this decision, like how would you feel about it and getting the youth input on it? Uh, it was really, uh, really lovely to um, to see that interaction and to like have that idea. I've never heard of anything like that before. Yeah, I know. So it's so funny because the 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 story of cloud brightening came to me also in that same way of like, what? That's a thing. Cause I, when I was on my book tour for Spineless, my first book, I was paired up with this Arctic scientist, this polar scientist. And we were sitting at the signing table after, (laughs) after, you know, we gave our talk and, and he was just like, yeah, you know, there's this solution to climate change and it's affordable. And I was like, come on, you got to be kidding to, you know, like, what are you talking about? And he was like the sort of older, very distinguished British guy. So like, you know, he spoke with a lot of gravitas. (laughs) I was just like, come on now. So yeah, I mean, this idea is that you, marine clouds are, um, well, let me just I, I don't think we set the stage yet, but let no, me just yeah. say like the main, the major problem for coral is climate change is, is the warming water, which causes coral bleaching. And so as temperatures rise, the coral break up with this algae that they have a really intense partnership with. And so if we could cool the water, like <laughs> on a regional scale, could we stop coral bleaching? And so that's, that's the question. And, and in Australia, where they have, you know, more coral reefs than anyone, the Great Barrier Reef, they're actively trying this process. And so the idea is that marine clouds are not quite as bright as clouds over land, just because what makes the cloud bright is uh, like, you know, you've heard that 
water particles form around little pieces of dust. Well, there's no dust over the ocean. So um, if you could add what are called nucleators, which are little things for water to particles to form around, you can make the clouds brighter. And it turns out you only need to brighten them by about 1% to cause a measurable change of like two degrees underneath those clouds, which is exactly what we need to prevent cloud brightening. So um, yeah, they did a demonstration project and it was successful. And now um, the guy, that guy who I mentioned in the book, he's actually been funded to continue this in a serious way. He's overseeing seven different research groups looking at different implications now. I mean, they haven't done it yet, like really done it, Mm -hmm. but but it, it's on the table for sure. And this is like when they uh, take particles of, of sea water, right? And they like break them down into like little, pe- they like uh, shoot them into the air, like <laughs> atomizing them basically. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, a, it, it looks like a snow maker. If yeah. you've ever seen a snow making machine, it's, it's a giant circular thing with these little spigots on it. And those spigots, you, they just take in seawater and spit um, very, very small if you can, you know, droplets of seawater, which basically are a salt crystal mm-hmm. and those kind of float up into the clouds and, and actually, you know, so naturally this is what creates clouds in the ocean is when waves break, little aerosolized pieces of seawater go up into the clouds and act as nucleators. So we're just kind of enhancing what's done naturally. It's not like you're adding something to the clouds that doesn't belong there. Yeah. It's not like a chemical um, addition. No, right. Right. It's just salt crystals. And then those salt crystals actually just rain back down into the ocean after about three or four days. Yeah. So. Uh, one of the things that I was interested in it, I guess my, my own personal bias is that environmental change is often motivated or, or the lobbying efforts of environmental change is often motivated by like uh, nonprofits and things like that. But you talked a lot in your book about different companies and corporations that are really invested, um, emotionally invested and financially invested in creating these changes. Do you think, I mean, this is, you know, your opinion, right? Do you think that for any real progress to made to be made, it's like almost imperative for us to frame it in terms that are compatible with capitalism? Yeah. I mean, so because the time frame is so short for coral and capitalism is what we have right now, and I don't think we're going to shift away from it in the next decade. I do. I think, um, yeah. And, and that was one of the things that I was really surprised by at that meeting in Florida, where I kind of got most of, <laughs> most of the stories for the book at least had their genesis there was that businesses were involved in this story. And I mean, part of that may be because coral reefs themselves have so much value. They're, you know, there's like, you, there's lots of ways to, to estimate it, but you know, somewhere around $10 trillion of economic value comes from coral reefs. So the businesses that rely on coral reefs like hotel chains and dive shops are starting to say like, we need healthy reefs. And so, yeah, I do think that capitalist ideas will have to be part of the solution set for, for corals. I can expand on that, but I don't know. (laughs) I, I just thought it was, I thought it was sort of interesting because I hadn't really, um, considered it from that perspective. And, and, and there were folks, um, all along the spectrum on that, that are involved in corporations and folks that seem to really like 
have an emotional connection to the reefs and folks that saw it that uh, I think you said Peter Diam- Diamandis Diamandis yeah. the he said uh, the world's biggest problems are the world's biggest business opportunities and so like there was that on the other side of it as well but almost like the <laughs> the coral and the algae, there's a symbiosis going on, you know, and the effort itself is going towards saving and preserving these reefs. And, you know, I, I was a little surprised by that. Yeah. Especially in the tourism industry, you know, they're realizing that when they have healthy reefs, well, first of all, coral reefs can diffuse 97% of the energy of a storm. So in terms of like properties on the beach, it's, 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 uh, it protects their, you know, their investments, like, directly. (laughs) And, and so that kind of spawned some of these really interesting financial tools, like coral reef insurance, and these things called debt swaps, where you swap uh, a bad loan out for protecting your coral reef. And, and that has, that is really uh, new. I don't, Think these are like the first example, the book, examples I tell, talk about in the book of those sort of novel financial tools for protecting quarries are, are, are really the first of their kind. And we'll see if they spread. There's actually this, this thing called the debt swap, um, where if a country has a loan that they're having trouble paying back, they can actually uh, trade, have to pay back a little bit less if they agree to preserve a certain amount of their coral reef that happened in uh, the Seychelles. Mm-hmm. And that was a really good example. I mean, they've preserved 30% of their marine area now. Um, it's now happening in Belize. It's spread to Belize already. And there's kind of like a rumor that the uh, Galapagos are about to do it as well. Wow. So it's, it's an idea that seems to be maybe having a little bit of traction. Yeah. And you break it down really well in your book. I'm, I'm not the kind of person who has a quite a head for um, economics uh, and it was very easy to follow, which I appreciate. And it sounded like a really great, you know, possible solution. You, you offer a lot of different possible solutions um, in the book, which is, which is lovely. On a personal note, you chose to combine the stories of the coral reefs and their impacts and their devastation with the story of your daughter, Izzy and her illness and subsequent diagnosis of OCD. First, I think it's really imperative to have these stories, you know, and to discuss mental health issues with compassion and empathy and awareness. Uh, And the way you were able to convey that experience from a parent's perspective was really moving. Um, But why did you choose to weave that into a book about environmental impacts and catastrophe and hope? It's back, y'all. The FBC Readathon is back for its third season, and honestly, it's better than ever. We've got tons of surprises in store for you. Join us the weekend of April 22nd through 24th for a low stakes, high reward readathon. The perfect excuse to set aside a few hours to power through your TBR. It's completely free, a ton of fun, and we have over 80 books and counting that we'll be giving away. All you got to do is sign up at feministbookclub.com slash readathon, and the link is in the show notes. Yeah, you know, it wasn't, I didn't set off really thinking I would do that. In my first book, Spineless, I did 
I didn't set off thinking I would do it either, but um, I, I, d- I ended up, as I was study- looking at the story of the jellyfish for that book, I was going to these same labs where I'd been in grad school and I had this really bad boyfriend in grad school. And so those stories just started to hit me in the face and I started weaving them in and I realized I liked it because mm-hmm. I think there's a sense a little bit that scientists are sort of not going through normal human thing, mm-hmm. you know, things that happen to you, like having bad boyfriends and being upset about that and not knowing where your life is going and all that. But like every scientist I know has gone through those normal human things. And so I felt like telling those stories, they amplified each other. Mm-hmm. And I thought it, and a lot of people who read Spineless told me they loved the personal parts and it helped them keep going with the science. And, and so, but when I started writing the choral book, I, I really didn't think I was going to do the same thing, but then my daughter got very, very ill with mental illness right around the time I started the book. And I was keeping a journal of what was happening with her that was separate. But as I was doing it, like, just like you just said it a minute ago, you know, it's kind of like the algae and the coral working together. Like you start to see these parallel stories when you think really hard about something. And I started to see how just like the coral are often invisible to us as land living up here on land, you know, mental illness is so often invisible to us. And, you know, if you looked at my daughter, you wouldn't know what she was struggling with and her friends or teachers, they didn't know. And I also came to understand just like, just like the coral reefs are so foundational for the ocean's health, like disproportionately so. A, a quarter of all marine animals live on coral reefs. Mental health is like disproportionately important to us as humans. Uh, you know, without that, you, all the other things you want to do, they just aren't really possible. And so the stories started to bounce off of each other, but then the book sort of goes through the period when COVID is happening. And that was just at the point when my daughter, her mental illness was really severe and we had to admit her into a hospital at that time. And I was supposed to go off to Australia right at that same time to see this cloud brightening experiment and it all collapsed. And I just couldn't keep the storylines apart any longer. They felt like they were intertwined in a way that was impossible to tease apart. And I sent some of that writing to my editor and I was like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like, how do I handle this? Like they, they seem like they belong together, but does that make sense? And she was like, I think this is some of your most powerful writing and let's make it work. And so we did. And I talked to my daughter about it and I said, you know, what do you think? And she said, I think mental health should not have the stigma that it has. It's just as important as physical health. And if we can try to share those stories, then let's do it. And she was very supportive. So, and then I was tried to be very careful and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned when you introduced this, I'm, I'm really happy to hear what you said because I tried to never assume what she was thinking or feeling, but only to talk about it from a mother's point of view, which is the only point of view that I could have. Um, and I tried to be very careful with that as I wrote about it. Yeah, it, you, that comes through and and especially towards the end where she says to you, you know, listen, I was lying to you about how I was feeling. You know, I, yeah. I didn't, I couldn't tell you the full extent of what I was feeling, you know? And so you get like a glimpse of 
just how hard that must have been for her, you know, um, and you give her that that sort of autonomy and authority over her own internal landscape without having to, you know, bring that out totally up to the surface, not to use a pun. Um, <laughs> I it, just, to, it just starts happening. You I just tried started. really hard. Yeah, I tried really hard not to like include a lot of puns, but it was challenging. It's, I know. It's just like it all starts bouncing around in your brain and you're like, oh, my God, everything's connected. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and you did a lot. Of, you used a lot of visibility of working moms in this book. You know, you shined a a light on a lot of brilliant people that were mothering their children while excelling in their areas of interest and like juggling all these things, you know, microwave fire, you know, um, at once. And it was really um, affirming. And I don't think you see a lot of that, you know, in in books or in media in general. So but there's a lot of it happening. So it was it was really nice to have that representation, too. Cool. Yeah, I know like there's one scene where I'm in the hardware store looking for faucets and Richard Beavers calls me. And I like sit on a stack of buckets and yeah. talk about coral with him, you know. Yeah. It's, it's just, just but that's life, right? I mean, that's what life is right now. And yeah, there's 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 good things and bad things about it. And sometimes it's just good to laugh about it too, you know. Another another part of the book that you included that I think um, most people probably wouldn't traditionally include is a discussion about representation and diversity and equity. And you start in the beginning of the book um, talking about the arithmetic you do at these marine science conferences. Yeah, how, how there are more usually more uh, women there than men. And then towards the end, you talk about the uh, lack of diversity and representation in academia after the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Yeah. Uh, what, what, um, what made it feel necessary to you to, to include this? I think I'm, you know, I'm always, I'm always, I am always looking around, like, are there women at this? How come there's so many women at this meeting? And yet in the higher levels of academia, women are still not very well represented. And I and I'm, I'm, I don't have a good answer for that. So I think I was just kind of wondering out loud about it um, in the book that I, I, I always do look around and kind of like do a count. I don't know, it's, just, it's something I think about often. And I, I mean, I will say like the coral lab that I've been hanging out with this coral genetics lab at the University of Texas, it's, it's almost all women graduate students. Um, so I think that it's coming. It, it's just been slow to come, you know, especially within science. Biology is a little better than some other sciences, but um, yeah, it's it's still, you know, the, getting those highest highest awards like National Academy of Science, and not, it, it still isn't there. So I am. I think I'm just always thinking about it. And then I did struggle a lot about how to include this question of representation by people of color in the book. And after Breonna Taylor, I mean, it's, it's kind of how I wrote it after the George Floyd murder, the university of Texas shut down for a day. And, and there was a day of let's, let's look at representation in academia. And 
the coral lab where I hang out at UT had like a whole lab meeting about it. And so I kind of just reported on that and, and felt like this story needs to be part of this book because everything is interconnected. You know, the more voices of diversity we have in academics, the more we'll think about things in a more broad way. And literally coral reefs are on the edge of places where people of color traditionally live in all these tropical places in the world. And so how can we not bring those voices into the conversation? And, and so I just felt like I needed to highlight that um, in, in a way that I could. And, and because I was, because this thing happened and this day of talking about it happened, I was like, I'm just going to put this in the book and see, and, and I'm glad I did. It's, it's, it's tricky. And it was especially tricky during COVID because we were all stuck in our houses. So how do I get out and tell the story? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it felt like a good, a really good addition, you know, um, and something that is often missing from the discussion, unless, you know, we're talking about a book that is specifically or, or, a, or a work that is specifically geared towards discussion of representation um, in these different fields. And it doesn't need to be sequestered like that. You know, it, it needs to be a part of the conversation when we're talking about about anything, because it does, this is something that spans across multiple fields, you know, uh, institutional racism and uh, things of that nature. And so it, it's, it was really lovely to see that included. And, and you also talked about the history of enslavement and colonialism and the Caribbean and, and how uh, different areas are including indigenous populations in the discussion about how to preserve the reefs and, and following their lead in that. And um, yeah, I just want to appreciate that. Thanks. You know, I actually, I'll say I took the lead from Australia because every time you have a communication with someone in Australia, they acknowledge the traditional owners. And I, it's very noticeable. And I'm like, gosh, you know, we should be doing that here. And every reef that I went to, I tried to acknowledge the traditional people who lived there, you know, before colonization. So I, I'm really grateful that, that that awareness is finally starting to be part of the conversation. Yeah, um, I, I read that just last week, the Great Barrier Reef suffered its sixth mass bleaching event. Yeah. Um, has COVID stalled efforts and initiatives to help mitigate the tragedies? And do you think we've lost some ground that we gained or... Uh, such a, it's a tough one. Initially, I was really hopeful because carbon emissions fell, right? <laughs> Initially, but now they've bounced back and kind of overshot where they were. Um, I mean, certainly there's, there's been a little relief from tourism, but it turns out tourism isn't, uh, isn't really a t- terrible, um, at least on the Great Barrier Reef in particular. Um, I don't think COVID has done much to stall mitigation except in that except in that you know our climate change meetings have been pushed off and we haven't been able to get together to talk about these these issues but this is the decade of the ocean in the in the united nations and there's a big meeting in lisbon this summer called our ocean which is um it, it's been rescheduled twice so yeah maybe there's been some delay <laughs> there and then there's uh and and the this big global fund for coral reefs is is going to be discussed at this meeting so yeah well 
I don't know if, I don't think things have stalled out too much. Yeah. It's hard to say though. It's a, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, it's all, it's all kind of a mystery. I think right now mm-hmm, we're just kind mm-hmm. of muddling through it. We are yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, this was just such an honor. I was Thanks. so enthralled by life on the rocks and, and I'm glad you put together this really important work. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk about these things and, and I'm glad you brought up some of these more, you know, the more issues of diversity and representation, but things that I don't get to talk about that much when I am talking about this book. So I'm really grateful for this conversation. Yeah. At the end of the book, you said ocean justice is inextricably bound to social justice. And that's something we really believe at Feminist right. Book Club. And, and I was just delighted to um, be able to talk about that angle of this with you. Thank you. Before, I'm delighted. <laughs> before we close, would you like to tell folks where they can find you online? And are there any resources you'd like to direct folks to? Yeah. Um, my website is just www.julieburwald. And it's just J-U-L-I. There's no E. My mom took that away from me. <laughs> <laughs> B-E-R-W-A-L-D.com and other resources that I would push you toward. I think probably if you just check out my blog, I'm often posting about stuff. That's a good place to look. Yeah, I think that's that. Okay. I'm trying to think if there's like other critical resources. I mean, well, if you think of anything, you know, uh, just send me an email. We'll include it in the show notes. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, thanks again for joining us. We've been talking with Julie Burwald, the author of the new book, Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and you can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. Until next time, friends, be well. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature.